How are you doing? It is almost Christmas time and this is a Christmas time offer for you for being a loyal listener. Join us on Patreon and you get 15% discount for the annual subscription. You're going to get first dibs on tickets for Dalky, for Kilconomics and for live podcasts. You're going to be part of our book club, which I'm launching in January. You're going to get access to my monetary economics course, the one I gave in Trinity, and you're going to get a sort of a sub-stack backdrop of all sorts of articles that go into making these podcasts. So join us, patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams, between now and Christmas Day, and you get 15% discount for the annual subscription. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How you doing there? It is podcast time. John was just saying to me, hold on a second, where are my headphones? And then he goes, they're on me. How are you, Ed? <laughs> clearly, clearly not well. <laughs> clearly not well. And did you have a big night last night? I, I was out for a few beers, in fairness. <laughs> See, I let you come out on your own. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. What do you I do? really need going... to go home early. That's what <laughs> I need to do. And now, and now his, his, his Ned Kelly is also yeah. playing up. It's out of order. The bag is out of order this morning. This is so like... I'm, I'm actually a delicate soul today. He is the Flan O'Brien. He is the brother of Flan O'Brien because if, if you know you're Flan O'Brien, you'll know that the brother couldn't look at an egg in the morning <laughs> after a feed of pints. And this is where John is. It is, though, in fairness. Malt. It is, It is in fairness, John, though, on the way to Christmas. It is. To it the is. Christmas. To the Christmas. The Christmas. And, and we are in full flow of madness. Yes, it is all going a little bit pear-shaped. I was in town on Thursday night. I was in the Dawson Lounge. Oh, yes. Tiny little pub down yeah. at the top of Dawson Street. Read it down. Smallest in, pub in Ireland. Down in it? the bowels of the earth. And uh, you get about two people in there. You get about there was about a couple of us in there, but it felt like there was three dozen of us, even though right. there was about four of us in there. But uh, yeah, town. It had the big mental head in it. You could sense. Yeah, that you could sense that there wasn't much work done on the Friday. <laughs> but John, I want to talk to you about something that has struck me about the economy here, and I want to start with a little story happened to me last Saturday afternoon. Okay. So last Saturday afternoon, my mum, who you know, is in really good form, but uh, she got a chest infection, as old, a lot yes, of elderly people yes, do you were get. telling me, yeah. At 88 this year, you know, just 88, just gone. So she said, yeah, I've got a bit of chest infection, you know, and I said, well, we were chatting away and we doctor came up to see her. 
But eventually, like that generation says, okay, that's it. There's something wrong with me. I'm going to check myself in. So she goes down right. to Annie. So we go down to. That was very sensible. It's not very, really something that uh, somebody of that generation would do. No, because usually they avoid hospitals. Yes, yeah. But yeah. So she rang me. She said, bring me down to Annie in St. Michael's in Dunleary. It was last Saturday afternoon. We went in and the Annie was empty or reasonably empty. Oh, reasonably okay. empty. So didn't wait that long. And what was extraordinary was the treatment, once you get in to the A&E, once mm. you get into the hospital, the treatment is amazing. But what really struck me, of course, was the doctor was Filipino. Yes. The nurse was Filipino. Yeah. One of the other nurses was Indian. The radiographer who took an x-ray of my mum's lungs was Eastern European. Yeah. The porter was Irish and the receptionist was Irish. Yeah. But what you saw was that is immigration. That is the face of the Irish front line. And the face of the Irish front line is brown. Absolutely. And different. So I was sitting there, and this is what I want to talk about here, is what we are doing now on economic policy is going to imperil those very people who are on the front line. Yeah. Because the advisors to our government, which is an outfit called the Fiscal Council, they are telling the government that we should stop spending or reduce spending now. And you know what's going to happen? If you reduce spending at a time when your population is expanding and it's expanding because of immigration, yeah. what you will do is you will create the ideal background noise for a backlash against migrants. And the migrants, and the migrants are the very people who are treating our mothers in hospital. Exactly. And as I was saying to you that, that my mum is in a home and all of the staff... All of the nurses, they're all Indian or Filipino. Yeah. And they're all fantastic. Like they really, I'm not just saying that they are absolutely fantastic, but it's interesting that, that your mum's in Michael's in Dunleary because that's where my mum was a nurse. Yeah, when for I was years. a young fella. Yeah. yeah. And you've heard me probably rant and bang on about how badly it nurses has been many are paid. years that I've been listening to your rants about many things, John. But those all those frontline workers need to be paid properly. Because then yeah. all of the Irish nurses now have and there was a thing then, and it's still a thing now, they get trained up here and, and they, they leave. And they leave. Well, know? it's interesting you talk about also Irish nurses. Uh, got a lot of feedback from the diaspora conversation we had last week. In fact, one person on Twitter has been to the Western Approaches bar and oh said, I can act, he said, I was busy with myself. He's, a, he's obviously a scouser, he's a Liverpoolian. And he said, it is an RAF pub, rough as fuck. He said, it still is. So, but if you will remember this, the NHS in England was largely staffed by Irish nurses. Yeah. In the 1960s, 1970s. My niece is there at the moment yeah, as a nurse. Yeah. So, so there you go. So, I mean, what I want to talk to you about now is this is the front line in Ireland. And they are foreign mm. and they are immigrants and they are amazing and they're sensitive and they're calm and they're almost angelic in the way in which they treat the patients, particularly the elder. You yeah. know, the elder, they're, they're worried, they're nervous, they're anxious, you know, they're getting sick. And these people are extraordinary. And what makes me quite angry, John, is that at the moment, Ireland has masses of tax revenue. Yeah. Masses. Yeah. And rather than spending those tax revenues today, on infrastructure, where we have massive deficits, the Fiscal Council, who are largely economists in academic positions, employed on the public purse, ironically, are telling the government not to spend. And what this seems to me is this is allowing the intellectual relic of the past. What's the rationale? What's their rationale okay. for, for not spending? 
The rationale for not spending is that they look at the world through the prism of accountancy. Mm. And accountancy tends to be incredibly static. And in order to qualify as an economist, you have to look at the world through a dynamic perspective. So something that's constantly adapting, very, very complex, constantly evolving, right? Yeah. So what you have at the moment, right, is that the accountants are in the ascendancy, right? And the accountants are driven, this is what I was going to say, by the relic of the 1980s. So in the 1980s, Ireland had successive budgetary crises. And therefore, there is almost a piece of the Irish economic DNA, which is obsessed about fiscal crises. We had another fiscal crisis after the Celtic Tiger, Mm. right? But that Mm. was driven by completely different ideas. That was driven by far too much private sector borrowing, okay? And then when the private sector collapsed and the banks collapsed, there was basically no money to pay back all the money we borrowed, right? Yeah, yeah. But the real DNA comes from something which I think is a legacy of the 1980s. And the reason the 1980s is important is the majority of economists who are now in senior positions were educated in the 1980s, are educated by people who were teaching economics in the 1980s, right? And they've come to the idea that at every stage, Ireland is at risk of some sort of potential fiscal crisis in the future, right? So they're scarred by that in yeah. a way, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. But right now... But we that, are, that's just learning from the past. So That's the, learning from the past, but although the past can give you some indication of what might happen, it is never a carbon copy. So this past was when Ireland had its own currency. Mm. So we set our own interest rates. Yeah. So we set our own monetary policy. Yeah. So we set our own budget deficits. And the bonds that we issued to pay for those budget deficits were issued on the open market. So Ireland had a sovereign debt regime, right? Right. We had no growth. Yeah. We had no multinationals. Yeah. We had no immigration. It was an entirely different society. Now we are in the euro, so we have no currency. We don't have our own interest rates. They're set by Germany. Yeah. Capital and talent flows in and out freely of the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have been growing gangbusters for the last 10, maybe 11 years. And the entire economy structure is completely different. So it's a bit like saying... So different rules apply. It's not only different rules, you're you're dealing with a different creature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're dealing with a completely different creature, right? But one of the problems is that in Ireland, we are still very insecure about our economic position. Not we, the people but the people who run the place. Mm. So, for example, you would have thought that after 30 years, so Ireland was the worst performing economy in Western Europe for the first 70 years of our existence. Not the fifth worst or the second worst, yeah. or the worst. And then for the last 30 years or 25 years, we've been the best. Yeah. So we've gone from worst to best with no little bit in the middle. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. We've gone from very shite to very good with no mediocrity. <laughs> but for some reason, our intellectual journey hasn't travelled at the same speed. So the people who run the country are still thinking like we're in the 1980s. They're also, what I what I say is, we are thinking like poor people when the country is rich. Mm. Remember I always say to you about the difference between poverty and wealth is time horizons. Yes, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So poor people's concerns are always about the very, very near term. And the reason is the fault, they have no money. Yes. So yeah, if you have yeah, no money... Plan. Yeah, you, you can't plan. You're worried about, you're worried about, can I get paid tomorrow? Can I pay the rent tomorrow? Mm. Can I pay the groceries tomorrow, right? So what basically happens is your time horizons as a poor person become completely and utterly immediate. Whereas a rich person, if you listen to, you know, I always remember this when I first went to America, 
and he'd listen to Americans planning about the future and their pensions and their retirement and what they were going to do and all this sort of stuff. It was all about these very extended time horizons. And the reason is exactly you can plan. You're not worried about money. So if you have a poor person's perception, you're always going to be worried about money tomorrow. If you have a rich person's perception, you're always going to be much more concerned about planning for the future and making the future better, right? Now, we are now a rich country and we should be looking at 10, 15 year plans. Of how do we make the future better? Mm. But the economists who are running the place still think like poor people. That is if somebody's going to come up tomorrow and take all the money away from us, right? Yeah, but you were talking before about how Germany and Europe in general are kind of wobbling a little bit. Well, Germany in particular, yeah. So therefore, if Germany wobbles, Europe wobbles, and then if there's a downturn in Europe, at least we've got something in the coffers to kind of get but us that, through. That's the, that's the sort of thinking which is interesting. I'm going to give you two or three things in Germany. The reason Germany has a problem is that Germans look at the economy in an incredibly rigid way. Mm. So they have, believe it or not, put into their constitution a ban on borrowing. So really, they have made it illegal to borrow for state and federal budgets above a certain level. So what they've done is they have, in a most bizarre thing, so you know the way I always say the economy is an alive organism, it's a living yeah. thing, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you legislate for a ban, for example, on budget deficits over a certain target, what you're doing is you're trying to impose rules on a creature that is really unruly. Yeah. And you're trying to, much more importantly, eliminate the business cycle. You can't eliminate the business cycle because the business cycle is human nature. But it has worked pretty good for them so far. It has simply because Germany had such a massive surplus, right? They had a massive, massive Mm. surplus based on three things. One, they were importing cheap energy from Russia. Yeah. Two, they were exporting to China. And three, they'd outsourced their military spending to America. So they were basically dependent on Russia being nice, China being nice, and America being nice. Yeah. Now the only one still nice to them is America. Yeah. And even that may well change. That's a bit questionable as well. Yeah, yeah. because the Americans are saying, we're not going to pay. So the German model, you remember we probably did it with Andrea Binder about six months ago. Yes. There's a fascinating discussion about the industrial aristocracy, how Germany works. But the essential idea that Germany was subsidized by three subsidies, Russian subsidy and oil, Chinese subsidy taking basically their capital goods, and American subsidy on their defense spending. That's all over, right? Second thing is the German population is old. And as your population gets older, they tend to save more. And as they save more, they spend less. And as they spend less, your tax revenue actually falls. Yes, so yeah, things, yeah, yeah. But the There's fascinating thing is a Greek, a Greek a politician was advising the Germans last week to sell an island. Do you know that? <laughs> oh, See, when the, when the Greeks went bust in 2010, right? Yeah. The Germans... Start to lecture them and say, you've got to get your yeah, house yeah, in order. I remember Why don't that. you sell an island or two, which is what the Germans said, right? To the Greeks. Yeah. And like you sell Eos or Mykonos or yeah. whatever, right? And now <laughs> the Greeks are saying to them, the European Parliament, you should sell one of those islands you have over the north coast. The island of, the island of Rügen, where I have been, which is the north Baltic coast in Germany. Beautiful place. So that's the first thing, right? But we come back to this idea, and this is something that we don't want to tell anybody in Ireland, right? Is that... The Irish people are very, very good Europeans, but we do far better economically when Europe is weak and America is strong. But we never tell anybody this, right? And here's the reason, right? Yeah, go on, explain that. So when Europe is weak and Europe is in recession, 
it means European interest rates are very, very low. Mm. So we get a direct subsidy from Europe because we're part of the Eurozone, mm. right? Yeah. But when Europe is weak, the Euro is also very weak against the dollar. Now that makes Ireland look incredibly cheap for Americans. And what do Americans do here? They invest in a way they don't invest anywhere else. So when Europe yeah. is weak, although we might lament it publicly, intellectually and analytically, when Europe is weak, we're at our strongest. And when America is weak and Europe is strong, we're at our weakest. Right. So it's, we are a, shh, don't tell a sinner this, right? <laughs> we are a counterintuitive indicator and a countercyclical indicator for the European economy. So what we actually want is a weak Germany and France indefinitely. Yeah. And that makes us much more attractive to Americans. And because of Brexit, because the Amer because the Brits have decided to opt out, opt out of the civilized world, right? Yeah. All that marginal investment is going here, not over to the UK. But what that is doing is that's putting enormous stress and strain on our economy. Yeah. Because there's too much going on here. And when there's too much going on here and you have lots and lots of immigration, unless you keep building roads, hospitals, schools, houses, unless you keep building at an extraordinary clip, you will get social chaos. And that's where we are now. Okay. So the Fiscal Council people, yeah. they know this, obviously, and they're... Maybe not. This is the interesting thing. This is what perplexes me. And I'm not having particular, you know, at these particular individuals. Yeah. But they're is a total lack of grown-up thinking in Ireland, right? And I'll tell you what it is. Right? If you go for a policy of open immigration, which we have done, mm. and if you go for a policy of open capital, which we have done, yeah. what you're going to do is you're going to put enormous pressure on the existing infrastructure, which we know is the case. So the way you respond to these deficits in infrastructure is you spend money. Mm. Now, if you don't have the money, you borrow the money and you hope that the economy grows in the future at a faster rate than the rate of interest, yeah. which means that you could actually pay the money back. But what we're in a situation now in Ireland is not only do we need enormous public expenditure, but we have enormous surpluses on the budget side of things. Mm. So probably what is most egregious is that there is no joint up thinking here. So the left hand, which is the economy needs investment, isn't speaking to the right hand, which is how is the budget deficit. The left side of the brain isn't speaking to the right side of the brain. And what they're doing now is they're taking this inherited, as I said, this relic intellectualism from the 80s, and they're superimposing it on an economy which is a completely different creature. Because when the economy requires spending, either you spend and either you expand the supply curve of the economy. So when the demand curve of the economy shifts, which is actually what has happened, right? Yeah. You could do one of two things. You can do nothing or you can shift the supply curve of the economy and ultimately then you reach a new level, right? If you don't do that, you're going to get two things, either inflation mm -hmm. in prices are inflation in what I call queues, right? So there's two ways the market can adjust. Either prices go through the roof, yeah. or you get long tailbacks, right? Because your supply hasn't actually responded. And what we're getting is both of those. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it's not just a lack of, of supply on... It, it's both. It's, it's everything. It's, yeah. So, and, and when people are in traffic, 
when people are waiting in queues, when that price of houses goes through the roof, when their kids are in classrooms that are overcrowded, they get pissed off. Yeah. And the public mood shifts. So basically, John, what we've got to do is there's the three Ps here. Yeah. There's public investment, public finances, and the public mood. And in a way, the objective of economic policy is to find that Venn diagram, that sweet spot in the middle where the public finances are okay, the public investment is okay, and the public mood is quiet and calm. And we're miles away from that. Let's explore that and how we can actually find that little sweet spot after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mark, you were talking about the dilemma that we're in. The trilemma, we- not even a dilemma, a trilemma, John. That's, a, that's <laughs> oh my God, three that's parts of the brain working at once. But you're talking about like the danger of an overheated economy versus yeah. an overheated society. Exactly. So exactly. If, if we don't sort the economy... The society and, spills over. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And it boils over. Boils over. So what is this trilemma? So, and, and what do we need to do to kind of bring everything in line? So the first thing you've got to think about is... The Fiscal Council, the Department of Finance, they are all saying there is a risk of overheating in the economy now and therefore we should try and slow it down and therefore we shouldn't build or we shouldn't commission new projects and public works, etc. Right? Mm. So that's the risk. Because if you do, you're pumping more money into the economy and there's the multiplier effect and, and all, all that, that stuff. Of, and yeah, it's yeah. the children's hospital effect, right? Yeah. That basically what you'll do is you'll throw good money after bad because the price of everything's gone up. Yeah, yeah. And the price of everything's gone up as a result of a variety of things, one of which is the pandemic or all these sort of things, right? So they're saying not now. Yeah. But that risk of overheating is turned into an absolute certainty of overheating if you don't spend. Why? Because if you don't spend, your supply curve hasn't shifted. So the interesting thing is what they are doing now means we will overheat. Yes. The only way we wouldn't overheat is if we expand supply at the same time. When I say expand supply, it means 
build more roads, build more trains, build more schools, build more hospitals. Of course, this will all impact on aggregate demand, but it's what you're actually doing is you're shifting the supply curve of the economy. And once you do that, you reach a level where, for example, people are less hassled mm. and people are less constrained and people, that sweet spot, the trilemma sweet spot. Yeah. So your trilemma is the following, John. Public investment needs to be commensurate with your wealth. So you need to start thinking like a rich man, not like a poor man. Yeah. And that you will notice if you go to continental Europe, I was always amazed. I remember years ago being in Belgium and being on a train in Belgium and the train was going from Ostend to Brussels. Mm -hmm. This was in the late 1980s. And at the same time as the train was hurtling along, they were also building a train track beside it. And I thought to myself, God, is this very, this is this is very flahool of them at all. We're on a train already and they're building yeah. another train. And they were also building a motorway beside it. And I thought that was really silly because if you built a train yeah. and then you had a train and then you had another rail track, and then you didn't need a motorway because people could, you know. But of course, the Belgians didn't think about that. They were thinking about capacity. Build capacity now yeah. because we'll need it in the future. And if you go to a country like Belgium, what you realise is that the public infrastructure works extremely well. The train system works, the motorways work, yes, all that sort yeah, of stuff, yeah, it right? Does, yeah. So the first thing is we have to build more capacity than is needed today in order to make sure that we have sufficient capacity for the population tomorrow. And our population is growing rapidly and has grown rapidly, right? Not only our population, but there's more people at work in Ireland mm. than ever before, than ever, ever before which is an amazing thing, right? So that's the first thing. That's the public infrastructure, yeah. what I call the public realm. Okay. Then you think, okay, well, how do we finance? And then you got the public finances. And you say, well, are they in good condition? And what you see is that the Irish public finances are in amazing condition, largely because of this different tax that we get from multinationals, which I'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. So we're in such good public health in terms of the finances that we have a rainy day fund. Yeah. Very few countries have this luxury, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. That we are going to be running surpluses of up to 40 or 50 billion over the next six or seven years. Yeah. Right now, when you're running surpluses like that, your public finances are in an amazing position. Our debt to GDP ratio has collapsed. There is no problem on the public finances. So you've got a deficit in the public realm, a deficit in public infrastructure, and you have a surplus in public finances. So something is telling me there's no problem here and on the a, finance side. And, and on the finance side, we're here, as you say, because of revenue from the multinationals, largely. Largely, and, and also the fact that the but, unemployment is very, very low, uh, which, and tax revenue is very, very high. Income tax has never been higher. Yeah. So it's, it's, everything is going well. But just with regard to the multinationals, it's almost like you're at the risk of killing the, the golden goose. Like there's a, an investment equation, surely, where, you know, they come in here, invest loads, and our side of the equation is to invest in the exactly. infrastructure exactly. That, that exactly. services them. And what we're, we seem to be doing is kind of going back to almost a Victorian thing, saying, well, you remember Cadbury's and you remember like Guinness has built all the flats up in the Ivy yeah, Baths? Yeah. Why don't Google build flats? It's like, no, 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 no. We've got to build them, right? Yeah. So you're absolutely right. There's a quid pro quo, which yeah. is they come in and we respond all the time. So yeah. we keep building, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is this bizarre idea that the corporation tax we are getting in is a windfall. Yeah. Now, a windfall means something you find in the pub. <laughs> 
finding a tenor on the floor of the pub is a windfall. Yeah. Okay? It's a one-off event. Shouldn't have happened. Won't happen again. Yeah. And you spend it. Yeah. Right? Oh, do you not hand it in? Go. I you d- never <laughs> hand it in. You never, ever, ever hand it in. That's the first thing, That's right? That's how my mother told but me. I know, I know, I know. But <laughs> second thing is, so you think, so a windfall presupposes the idea that this is temporary. Yeah. Now you look at our corporation tax receipts and why they're so high. And what you actually, it's another dirty little secret, right? Not only are the high corporation tax receipts not the law of unintended consequences, a positive, this was the objective all the time. Now, what was the objective all the time? The objective all the time was to steal money from other people, right? Okay. Okay. So Uh basically what we have done in Ireland by having a corporation tax system which is linked not to the ability of this economy to generate tax, but the ability of the world economy to generate tax because we're getting multinational revenue coming through here and it ends up in our exchequer, right? Right. So Ireland is doing, via peaceful means, what countries down the centuries and empires did through violence. We are acquiring other people's wealth and we're not fighting for it, which is an extraordinary thing. That's and a bizarre way of looking at it, though. But we shouldn't, shh, don't tell a sinner, right? That's what's happening. And that means that the tax base that we are taking our tax from is much bigger than the tax base of our natural economy, which means that we will always have surpluses because that's the objective of policy. Now, a lot of Irish politicians and Irish economists are saying, oh, it's a windfall. I said, hold on a second, guys. This is what the policy was set up to do. It's just taken a few years to get there. Yes. So what I see is I can't see this as a windfall. This is a permanent or quasi-permanent attribute of the Irish tax system. And until that changes, it's going to be constantly delivering more money than you need. But why will we change it? And we won't change it now because the OECD have given us the green light because we're saying we're going to bring our tax system to 15% Mm -hmm. like everybody else and the playing field is then level. So then that goes away. Now you have people like Thomas Piketty, that French economist who wrote the most difficult economics book to ever read. Right? <laughs> what was it? Capital in the 21st century. Right. right. Okay, I'll avoid uh, that one. The lefties off lo- the list. The lefties loved it. They loved it because it gave them an intellectual framework, right? Yeah. And his basic idea, which I think is actually flawed, is that the return on capital, which is in effect the rate of interest, will always be greater than the return on labor, which is affect the wages. And as a result of that, what you will find is that capital will always mm. do better than labor. And the owners of capital, i.e., the boss classes a la Marx will always do better than the working classes and the labouring classes and the people who depend on wages for their income. But the problem is there's no evidence of that. Right. You might it's have a, to explain that a little bit more. So it's a bit like Marx. The, the, the amazing thing about Marx, right, is that for a man who got everything wrong, everything, <laughs> he has been probably the biggest intellectual influence on the world. Yeah since Das Kapital. Not the Communist Manifesto, Das Kapital. Because Das Kapital, deploying pretty bad mathematics, came up with a rigid certainty that the capitalist system was going to end up and was going to be cannibalised by its own inconsistencies. Mm. Now, what has happened? The communist system 
has disappeared. Yes. Right? So not only was Marx wrong, he was Marx, Marx was wrong about everything. Yeah. But the interesting thing, my friend Schumpeter was also wrong. Schumpeter, despite being an essentially a capitalist, believed that the capitalist system would disappear and would be taken over by a communist corporatist system. And he was wrong too. Oh, so the okay. two great thinkers of the late 19th and early 20th century were both wrong on the big idea. But, but the basic capitalist system at the moment is faltering. Well, I'm not sure it is faltering. I think that, I think that you know, capitalism goes through periods of renewal all the time. Yeah. To come back to our Schumpeterian worldview, that basically what you have is the ebb and flow of growth and innovation is the fact of the capitalist system. Yeah. Okay. What is a problem, and I really believe it. Remember we spoke with the other day that every billionaire is a policy failure. Yes. What yeah. is a problem is that the capitalist system as currently constructed allows far too much concentration of wealth in the hands of the few. In many cases, the United States case, you have something like the top four richest people in the United States own more assets than the bottom half of the entire population. Yeah. Which is crazy, right? Yeah. So because capitalism tends towards monopoly. But but that's what I mean. That's that's the complete failure of So you break it up. I mean that's what Teddy Roosevelt did uh, 100 years ago yeah. when he when he he took all the oil barons and the railway barons into a room. He said, "Listen lads, you know, Carnegie and Rockefeller, he said, this is just you're too rich." And they said, how can you possibly say we're too rich? He said, I'll say it, and I'm the boss man, I'm the president, and I'm going to break up all your companies, and we're going to break them up into smaller companies, and we're going to start again. And I think there's a, that is a, that is a possible vista, I think, happening. Right, but okay. So, so, but so to, 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 to come back to our point about this little yes. country, yeah. this little country, right, we have created, orchestrated, fabricated, constructed a tax system which is based on something that no other country has done, which is we get tax over and above our own ability to generate tax from our own country's tax base. That means that we have these perennial surpluses. That also means that we have the wherewithal to fix these public realm, public infrastructure yeah. deficits. Yeah. And the reason we do this is because the other P, which is the public mood. The public mood is dependent on people feeling that the society is not overheating, as you said, that the economy is not overheating, that somebody is in charge. Yeah. And at the moment, it seems to me that the public mood, and not to me, to everybody, is moving that there's nobody in charge. And those people who are in charge are not working on behalf of the people. And of course, the people who will suffer most from this are the immigrants, because when things aren't going well, it's always, let's look at the other fella, mm. the dark fella, the person who doesn't look like me, yes, the person who yes. doesn't go to the same church or worship as me, doesn't speak the same language as me, whatever it happens to be. And those people, as we said, are on the front line of our public services. Not all, not all. Yeah. No, there's, 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 not one, there's not like one immigrant, like one generic immigrant, but in general, they are working very, very hard. So... What strikes me as being irresponsible is prudence now, and this gets to the nub of the issue, right? Is that for many, many years, okay, and I would maybe blame Calvin and Calvinism for this, okay? Right. Is that prudence has been elevated as a characteristic over and above flahulism or spending. 
right? So the Calvinists taking their cue from the Lutherans had to find out a way of figuring out, could you be rich and be Christian? Right? This was the whole yeah. essence yeah. of it. So if you think that the Catholics started with this idea of it is more difficult for a rich man to get into heaven yeah. than a camel to go through the eye of a needle, yeah. right? The eye of a needle was actually a street in Jerusalem. Yeah. So Catholics started, or Christians in the Catholic tradition, started with this idea that the meek will inherit the earth. And that is the fundamental tenet of early Christianity, which makes us quite a radical, quite revolutionary idea, right? Mm. So the prods came in, uh, Luther and all his mates, and they said, okay, the meek will inherit the earth, right? Okay, we're not really sure about that one because we're actually quite well off, right? <laughs> and we're quite religious and we're quite well off. So what we'll do is we construct a set of thinking which ended up with Max Weber's Protestant work ethic idea. Yeah. That to be a godly person, you have to do good works here on earth. And those good works we can see in your involvement as a responsible, prudent citizen are burger, right? Because they tended to be urban dwellers, yeah. right? And then they made this other intellectual leap from there to Calvinism is about predestination. So you are predestined to go to heaven. But how do we know you're predestined? Well, because you're a good citizen. And how do you know you're a good citizen? Well, because you're prudent, and you're respectful, right, okay. and you're well-behaved, and all those other Fenians are out getting pissed at Shane McGowan's funeral, right? Yeah. So they created this narrative, the Calvinists, that prudence is one of the most sophisticated and elevated characteristics of economic man. Yeah. And it's no surprise that it was Scottish Calvinists and Scottish Presbyterians like Hume and, of course, Adam Smith who came up with the base philosophy of early economics, Right? And it's based on this notion that prudence is central and really behaving in a very non-reckless manner, yeah. right? Now, because economics is essentially a Presbyterian science, right? Its roots come from that. It also has got this elevation of the saver over the spender as a default part of our DNA. Mm. But the problem is if everybody's saving, who's spending? Yeah. And if nobody's spending, who's buying? And if nobody's buying, who's selling? And if nobody's selling, who's employed, right? So you have to look at it from a totally different angle. But the deep DNA of economics is still wedded to the idea of prudence. Now, prudence never built a hospital. Yeah. Prudence never came up with an innovation. Prudence never built a road. Prudence never built a train. What builds trains and hospitals is the opposite of prudence. It's slightly reckless optimism. And slightly reckless optimism is the font of all economic growth. So you have these two sort of almost moral battles going on. That's a dilemma. Right. right? But you put that dilemma into our trilemma, <laughs> and what you get is the dominance of prudential obsession winning over the pragmatic realities that we have to spend. This is why I say the relic of a past historical notion is bullying, in effect, the reality of Ireland's day-to-day -day lived experience, which is that we are in a situation that we have to build. So actually, the trilemma is a little bit more complicated then because it is about changing a deep, deep mindset as opposed to a simple policy. You're absolutely right. So it's about addressing an inherited mindset 
which is the tyranny of accounting over the possibility of economics. And mm. this, what I think, is actually a crux of the battle between both these sides of the intellectual balance sheet, so mm. to speak, right? So you have the accountants who are driven by one balance sheet and they derive a lot of their intellectual substance from classical economics, right? And then, of course, you have the reality and the political class who need to be attuned to the public mood. Mm. But the public mood is related to public finances through public infrastructure. Yeah. So the three of them are related. So what we need to do, John, is in a way, it's always almost more difficult to get rid of a bad idea than adopt a good one, right? Because bad ideas linger. Yeah. And the world is punctuated by bad ideas. And the world is hostage to bad ideas. But the problem with bad ideas is they tend to have disciples. And why do they have disciples? It's because people have invested lots of capital in them, mm. you know? And what we need now is we need to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of bad ideas. And that means embracing the unknown. But the problem with embracing the unknown is the risk is you don't really know where you're going. Mm. And the human mind tends typically to reward what's gone before. But the real elixir of economics is the human mind that embraces what we've never seen before. But that's not persuasive when you're a civil servant. However, the political class are the class that has to deal with the public mood. And it's the political class that need to be able to find this Venn diagram and that sweet spot. And that's what's very, very evident. If we don't build now, John, we will have social chaos. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.